Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. 46 years ago, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruled that a woman has a constitutional right to end her pregnancy. But recently, there has been a push by states to pass laws that would ban most, if not all, abortions. The legislators who passed these laws have made clear that the Supreme Court and overruling Roe v. Wade is their goal. We'll have an all-Tar Heel panel to discuss these laws. Joining us are David Savage, who covers the Supreme Court for the Los Angeles Times, and Tom Goldstein, the publisher of SCOTUS Blog. But first, let's start with a look back at other news at the Supreme Court this week. The justices added only one new case involving bankruptcy to their merits docket for next term. The Supreme Court also issued three decisions in argued cases on topics ranging from contracts in bankruptcy to the conflict between state drug laws and federal regulation of prescription drug labels. And Justice Neil Gorsuch joined the court's four liberal justices in ruling for a Native American hunter who had faced criminal charges for hunting off the reservation. But with the Supreme Court relatively quiet for most of the week, a lot of attention is going to the laws targeting Roe v. Wade. On May 7th, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a law that would ban abortions after doctors can detect a fetal heartbeat, which normally occurs around six weeks of pregnancy. Last week, the Missouri legislature passed a fetal heartbeat bill, and other states are expected to pass similar laws this year. On May 15th, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed a law that would effectively ban all abortions by making it a crime for doctors to perform abortions at any stage of a pregnancy. Welcome, David and Tom. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be with you. So let's start at the beginning. Why are so many laws like this being passed now? David. Well, you'd have to ask the Republican legislators of a number of states. You know, they have, for a lot of years, I think, wanted to restrict abortion, and they've operated under this regime that we've all had for the last 30 years, which is that states can regulate abortion, but they can't ban it. And now, with Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy... A lot of them, I think, think, yes, maybe the court is ready to overturn Roe and ban abortion. So they're all rushing to pass what seemed to be very, before, very extreme laws. I think when one state legislature moved forward, it became very hard for others that have significant pro-life majorities, conservative majorities, to then say no. There was a felt sense before that they had to take it slowly. They didn't want to pass a bunch of laws that would be struck down. But no state that takes this view wants to let some other get way out in front of it. So speaking of way out in front of it, just from a sort of procedural matter before we turn to the substance, are these challenges likely to get to the Supreme Court? And if so, on what schedule? Well, so these laws will be blocked by a federal district judge, right? I mean, they they clearly violate Roe versus Wade. If you're a federal judge, you've got to block the law. It would go to the Court of Appeals, and that court would also block the law. I don't know whether it would come up quickly on a sort of, um, you know, a quick motion. I think the justices would like it to come up a couple years from now, but I think it's hard to see. You know, they, they could come up quickly on a, on a motion to um, lift a stay, but presumably the laws will be kept on hold for quite a while before they are actually considered on the merits by the Supreme Court. And most of them don't go into effect for a while, Correct. so there's not a sense of urgency in that in that sense. Yeah, I think the pro-life forces are, unfortunately for them, setting themselves up for a significant setback, at least in public perception, because 
it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court wants to leap to the end of the story and decide a fundamental challenge to Roe versus Wade when people like the Chief Justice have tended to be more incremental, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And so the posture will be exactly what David says. A district court will say, no, the law can't go into effect. A court of appeals will say the same thing. And the state will go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will refuse to intervene. And it will look to the world like the Supreme Court is saying, no, we are reaffirming Roe, when in fact the Supreme Court is saying, we're just not going to get into this right now. So that's at the preliminary stages. So they go back, perhaps they have a trial, and then they have they go through the Court of Appeals, and they get to the Supreme Court. Before we get to the big picture of what the Supreme Court might do, can you walk us through the five conservative justices? What do we know about their views, A, on, on abortion laws that have come before them, and then B, on how likely they are to overturn Roe versus Wade? Well, Justice Clarence Thomas, we know. He arrived in the fall of 1991, and in the spring of 1992, he joined a, a dissent that said Roe versus Wade should be overturned entirely and now. So he's had that view for his entire, whatever, 27, 28-year career on the court. I think Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch are inclined would, uh, to also go pretty far to limit abortion or overturn Roe. Justice Gorsuch, for example, is a great believer in, you know, originalism and what the text of the Constitution is, and strikes me as he's somebody who would have thought Roe was wrong all along and probably should be overturned. Justice Alito, back in the early 90s, in the Casey case, was one of the the, uh, appellate judges who would have upheld all of Pennsylvania's restrictions. He took a more extreme position than anybody did at that time. And so I think it's pretty easy to say there are three pretty solid anti-Roe votes. We will all be watching the Chief Justice John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. In the case of Roberts, his whole career, you know, he was a conservative student at Harvard and the Harvard Law School. His first job in Washington, he worked for Justice Rehnquist, the dissenter in Roe versus Wade. He went to work in the Reagan administration, which was very committed to overturning Roe versus Wade. He was a deputy solicitor general under Ken Starr in the late 80s and joined briefs that said Roe should be overturned. He was then put on the Supreme Court by George W. Bush, and and they were very proud of picking conservative pro-life justices. So I've always thought there's every reason to think that John Roberts, A, thought Roe was wrong, B, that abortion is immoral and wrong. On the other hand, he's a the chief justice of the United States. There's a long precedent of upholding uh, abortion rights. So I've also assumed he wouldn't want to jump quickly and immediately to strike down Roe entirely. But I've always thought he would sort of lean on the anti-abortion side, willing to limit abortion rights. Justice Kavanaugh has a similar, he's a younger person, but a similar background. He came up in a sort of as a conservative who opposed, like a lot of conservatives, thought Roe was probably wrong. His situation is different, though, of course, because of the difficult confirmation mm-hmm. he had and the sense that I think he, like John Roberts, would also have the belief I don't want to move 
too fast, too quickly to confront such a big issue, precedent, and sort of a big national issue like uh, Roe versus Wade. So I would think he and Roberts would be in the sort of let's go slow on this. So these laws come to the Supreme Court and they say not now? I mean, they, they're not going to say that, but... Well, you know, Amy, they've, they've said a version of not now since early January. I've written a lot about this Indiana abortion case that was appealed. The week Brett Kavanaugh took his seat, Indiana filed the cert petition in this case. They had a law signed by Mike Pence that said, we're going to prohibit abortions for certain reasons, like if race or sex is one of the reasons for the abortion, or if the mother has had a diagnosis of Down syndrome or any other disability, we're going to prohibit those abortions. Predictably, that law was blocked by a judge in Indiana, blocked by the Court of Appeals. Indiana had that lodged that cert petition in the fall, and it has been before the court for a very long time. I think it's been relisted 13 times now. Yeah. Yes, that's that's right. I counted 14, it's, you know. 13, 14, who's cr- counting at correct. this point? Correct. No, no, you're absolutely right. Every conference since January, that case has been pending. So that suggests to me, I mean, I don't know what the court's going to do with that, but it sure suggests that they're not anxious to jump into this in a big way. If the Alabama people were right and the court was just anxious to move quickly to overturn Roe versus Wade, why wouldn't they have granted the Indiana case in January and be, you know, deciding it this term. And we know a little bit more. We've gotten a a few more clues from the Chief Justice John Roberts on abortion in a case out of Louisiana that came to the Supreme Court recently at the emergency, as an emergency appeal. Yes, I think that's more of the not now, you know, because the court in the Texas case struck down Texas's law that had a series of restrictions on clinics. Louisiana had the same law. The Fifth Circuit essentially found a way to uphold it by saying, well, things are different in Louisiana than in Texas. The state wanted the law was prepared to go into effect, and the chief justice joined the four liberal justices to block it and keep it on hold. So that doesn't decide the question, of course. It just keeps it on hold. And presumably the court will grant cert in that case in the fall and be deciding it about this time next year. But that's still a clinic case. It's not a ban on abortion. Absolutely. On May 13th, we're going to go back to the idea of precedent and you know, the Supreme. The states are asking the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court issued its decision in a kind of obscure case involving when a state can be sued in another state's court. Um, the, the decision was five to four, and the ruling overturned a 40-year-old decision. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote a dissenting opinion that was joined by his three liberal colleagues, and he devoted a lot of his opinion to what's known as stare decisis, the idea that courts should follow their earlier opinions unless there's a good reason not to. He closed with a line that got a lot of people's attention. He wrote that today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. This was really, you know, it it, it served its purpose. We were were all talking about this obscure 
state sovereign immunity case? You know, in California, we didn't think it was that obscure. It <laughs> Fair was, enough. <laughs> it was, it was a, a situation that Californians are familiar with. You uh, live in California, you make a boatload of money, and then you decide to move to Nevada that has no income tax. And this was a 28-year fight over just such a case. But you're right. From, it, for the Supreme Court's point of view, it was a question, seems to be a very sort of abstract constitutional question about whether states have sovereign immunity that they can't be sued by other states. And it's clear that the, f- the conservative justices were willing to overturn a precedent in, in this case. In 1979, the court said, yes, <laughs> by the way, the 1979 case was a, state, a driver of a state-owned vehicle from Nevada who caused an auto accident in California. And, and uh, California sued, and, and the Supreme Court said, yes, you can sue Nevada. They caused an accident. One of their drivers caused this accident. Anyway, the, it's clear the conservatives wanted to overturn this precedent, even though there seemed to be no compelling reason. There was nothing had changed. These suits are very rare. It didn't seem like, well, this is an unworkable. There was no evidence of that. This judgment had been whittled down to something like fifty or hundred thousand dollars. It become a fairly small case, nonetheless. And by the way, during the argument in that case, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito joined some of the liberal justices in saying, "Wait a minute, you say the Constitutional Convention. They were very concerned about this. Why didn't they put it in the Constitution?" There's nothing in the Constitution that says there's state sovereign immunity, but the conservative justices believe it very strongly. So anyway, five to four decision to overturn the precedent, and Justice Breyer, who I think is worried and wary about what's coming down the road, took the opportunity to say, wait a minute, we shouldn't, it's, it causes a real concern if this court is willing to overturn long-standing precedents for no apparent reason other than that they disagreed with the precedent. So as you say, because of the climate we're in, those few lines got a lot of attention. Now, Tom, everyone assumes he was talking about abortion, including because in that paragraph he cites to one of the court's seminal decisions on abortion, but could he be talking about other areas of the law as well? Yeah, I think it's probably a generalized concern. I don't think that Steve Breyer knows whether John Roberts would be willing to overturn Roe, but it's a question of the trajectory of the court, and Justice Breyer has said things like, you know, it's rare that things have changed so quickly uh, as as they have with the more modern conservative majority of the court. If you were to think about other areas of the law that would concern him, they would be kind of hallmarks of more liberal jurisprudence over the past three decades. They would be things like, can you have state schools provide affirmative action? What do we do about the wall separating church and state? Those are constitutional questions, just like this sovereign immunity case, just like the question of a right to an abortion. And they are kind of absolute pillars of the court's involvement in social issues in the country, and so they are constantly coming before the justices. And I think he sees the prospect of an emboldened conservative majority over the course of five or ten years, maybe not tomorrow, really redirecting the law and our understanding of the Constitution across the board. And, you know, he's probably right about that. 
You know, Tom, I, one of the things I think it's hard to get a handle on is whether precedent really, in the end, means much to the justices. I remember three or four years ago, there was a Glossop case at the end of the term about an execution, and, and Justice Breyer wrote a long dissent saying we ought to now declare the death penalty unconstitutional. And he had some reasons why that's the case. And Justice Scalia and uh, Justice Thomas both sort of blew up and, and wrote these sort of angry responses saying, wait a minute, the Constitution is quite clear on this. The, we've, we've upheld the uh, capital punishment all these years. How can you turn your back on that sort of precedent and say, oh, now what we've discovered it's all wrong? My sense is that is the problem inside the court is that each of them has seen the other side overturn precedents. When new things come along, they overturn a precedent. And so it doesn't, you know, from the public's point of view, it's quite correct to say the court shouldn't be cavalierly overturning precedent. It sort of shakes confidence in the system. But I think within the court, I think they've all seen their counterparts overturn precedents. And so it, I don't think it has the same, it, that charge doesn't have the same sting for them that it might have for others. Well, here we're talking about the Constitution. So when we have cases involving how to read federal statutes, I think the justices do pay a little bit more attention to precedent, thinking that, well, if we'll pretend we have a functioning Congress and Congress can come along and change the law if it wants. But on constitutional questions, I think that, you know, as a kind of my sense as, uh, from watching the court is that precedent matters a lot in one of two situations. You really, really care about precedent as a justice if you agree with it and also if you don't really care about the issue. But if you do care about the issue and you think it's wrongly decided, you kind of think it's your job to make sure the Constitution is correctly decided if it's a big, big deal. And so, you know, I think that reflects a lot of the justices voting. I will say, however, that increasingly you see the liberal members of the court really, really invoking stare decisis and being unwilling to overturn precedent that they otherwise might have real doubts about. We had a case last term involving internet sales taxation, where most of the justices on the left were unwilling to overturn an old precedent, even though it was really understood to be out of step with the law and to prevent the collection of taxes that are important to social services. And it was the more conservative members of the court in general who were willing to revisit precedent. And I think it just changes with the tide. If, the, if, if Merrick Garland was on the Supreme Court and you had a liberal majority on the court, the shoes would probably be on the other foot and you would be hearing more about stare decisis from the conservatives and less about it from the left. Yes, I agree with both points. Justice Kagan has been, I think, fairly vocal in the arguments and in the decisions of saying we need to stand behind precedent. She's trying to sort of lay down that marker that, that precedent, we, we shouldn't casually overturn precedents just because we think they, they were wrong. I also agree with the point that if Merritt Garland were on the court, there would be a move to overturn capital punishment, and there'd probably be five justices in favor of it, and the conservatives would be saying, what happened to uh, our respect for precedent? It's a chess game. David Savage, Tom Goldstein, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Thanks. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Andrew Hamm, Edith Roberts, and John Levitan.